Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Sexual harassment and discrimination and assault. The hashtag MeToo has helped launch a movement across the country and internationally that has called out this behavior in a very public way. So much so that Americans are now watching as high-profile men in the news and entertainment fields lose their jobs over sexual misconduct. Just yesterday, Time Magazine honored the MeToo movement. Honestly, I was furious. I had had a man grope me in front of multiple colleagues, and I was tired of wondering if it was something I wore. I was tired of wondering if it was a vibe I was giving off. And when I talked to other women, they were furious too. That's Adama Uwu, one of more than a dozen women, and some men featured in a Time video as the magazine explained its choice for 2017 Person of the Year, calling them the silence breakers. They are the people who have spoken publicly about being sexually harassed, discriminated, and abused. Today, where we live, we look at the conversations happening in the workplace and at home. Later in the hour, we'll speak with an employment attorney about how employees and employers in any industry should be responsible to allegations. What rights do you have if you decide to report a co-worker or your boss? We'll find out later. We'll also talk about sexual harassment and discrimination in the academic community. There have been reports at colleges and universities alleging misconduct by professors in recent years, but consequences against the accused haven't taken off to the, de- to the degree that we've seen in recent days. Why is that? We'll speak to a Yale professor leading a movement for change. We'll find out what steps the sciences are taking to uncover and respond to harassment. That's coming up. But first, you can probably recite the names of powerful men in recent days who no longer have their jobs. Hollywood moguls, news anchors, what about politicians? Members of Congress, including Connecticut Senator Chris Murphy, have asked Democratic Senator Al Franken to resign over sexual misconduct. And despite all the allegations against Alabama Senator Hopeful, Republican candidate Roy Moore, members of his party and the RNC continue to support his candidacy. Sexual harassment has dominated news headlines before, but the movement to speak out publicly feels different this time. Why now? Join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. My first guest is Carrie Baker. She joins us from the studios of New England Public Radio in Amherst. She's associate professor and director of study of women and gender at Smith College and author of the book, The Women's Movement Against Sexual Harassment. Carrie, welcome to the show. Thank you. Uh, as I mentioned, this isn't the first time that sexual harassment and assault has made the headlines. I wanted to go back a little in history. I wanted you to talk about some of the precipitating factors that we've seen that have led to this moment in time. So the phrase sexual harassment was coined by feminists in Ithaca, New York in 1975. They had had these experiences. They got together and began to speak about them and organized against them. They did surveys. They got the data on how widespread it is. And at first people said, oh, this is natural. It's just the way things are. This is how guys are. Or, you know, it's not harmful. This is flirtation. And the women organized and said, no, this is harmful. We're losing jobs. Were um, you know having uh, physical symptoms, and so they began to organize around the issue and turned what really was the norm in the workplace into a federal civil rights violation over between 1975 and 1986, and. 
you know, awareness was raised and people, um, you know, uh, began to file lawsuits. But it really wasn't until 1991 when Anita Hill testified before Congress and C-SPAN covered it on cable 24-7. And really the public entered public consciousness. And, um, and you know, awareness was really raised. And and there was a lot of legislative and legal and political things that happened in response that I think can give us an idea of what might happen in the coming days and years. It's interesting that you mentioned uh, the uh, access to cable at the time of those uh, confirmation hearings for Clarence Thomas when Anita Hill testified. Uh, this was something that I remember my parents watching uh, back in 1991, and I wasn't quite sure what was going on, but I remember that being a uh, Walter wall coverage uh, on television. Fast forward to 2017, I mentioned the hashtag MeToo movement. Social media has really played a role in bringing this to the public. Um, But what were some of the the differences of coming out of Anita Hill's uh, testimony back in 91 that we're not seeing today? So back in 1991, it was one woman's story. Um, The members of the Judiciary Committee um, did not allow the other women who had complaints against Clarence Thomas to testify. And, you know, she was kind of alone up there. And um, and also it was, you know, it was people you didn't necessarily know who were in the media being talked about. And the thing that's amazing about Me Too is that it's our friends, it's our family members, it's people that we know. And, and then with social media more generally, um, you know, we're hearing about so many more stories and women are connected and coming together and telling their stories. And it's that's what's always made the difference, is when women act collectively. If it's one woman telling her story, you know, they can try to discredit her and, um, you know, say, well, she's crazy. But if it's a group of women, it's much harder to discredit. And this goes all the way back to the 70s, but I'm seeing that happening now at a much larger scale, where women are coming together and supporting each other. There's a new website um, organization called Callisto out in California, where women are reporting their experiences of sexual assault in order to find each other, because often perpetrators are serial perpetrators. And so they're finding others who've been sexually assaulted by the same person coming together and then stepping forward in a group rather than individually. And I think this is a really important strategy. So my point is, I think technological developments are really important. In the 90s, it was cable. In, uh, but today, it's the Internet and in particular, social media. I mentioned uh, we were talking a little bit decades ago, but when we look at recent years, uh, Carrie, uh, you work at um, a college, uh, a lot of attention on sexual assault on college campuses. Of course, during uh, the 2016 presidential campaign, uh, the video of of Donald Trump saying what he did um, very graphically uh, on tape to Access Hollywood about women. Um, How have these all led, uh, led to this moment in time where people are saying enough is enough? Yeah, I think it's important to understand that this didn't come out of nowhere, that the women's movement's been working hard on these issues for really, I mean, 42 years since the term was coined, sexual harassment. But there's been a lot of amazing activism going on across the country, particularly on college campuses, but in other places. And I really think that that built the groundwork for what's happening today. Um, You know, certainly when the Department of Education issued um, really powerful guidelines under the Obama administration, that was in response to students um, uh, organizing on campuses. When Betsy DeVos, you know, Trump's appointee at the Department of Education, reversed those guidelines, 
that really mobilizes people. You know, for the Trump administration to go back, you know, when we are finally um, organizing and speaking out, I think it really angered. I know students are really, really angry about this and organizing and care deeply about this. I think that in the 26 elections, to see um, Trump get elected after that Access Hollywood video and the allegations against him, um, you know, it's kind of like Clarence Thomas getting appointed to the um, Supreme Court after Anita Hill's allegations. I think people are mad. And that anger um, back in 91 led to a lot of change. And I'm hoping that the today's anger will also lead to a lot of change. Uh, I was thinking about the scandal uh, surrounding uh, then-President Bill Clinton and with Monica Lewinsky. Um, nowadays, we're hearing about uh, members of Congress that have uh, have had uh, bad behavior, whether it's sexual harassment or worse. Again, uh, today we're expected to hear what Democratic U.S. Senator Al Franken will be doing with members of Cong- Congress calling on him to resign. But uh, back when President Clinton was in office, uh, did he have more support from from the so-called feminists, and is that something that um, that we're seeing today? That's that's no longer the case. That this is not something that we want to hold on party lines. If this is someone who's doing this, everyone should be held accountable. Yeah, I was uh, sort of waiting with bated breath to see what would happen around these allegations. Um, and I, I I think it's very um, um, stunning that the Democratic Party has come out in such numbers to oppose the Democratic members of Congress, John Conyers and Al Franken. I would just hope that the Republicans would do the same. So far, I'm not seeing that. Um, you know, I, I guess the Republican National Committee is supporting Roy Moore. Roy Moore. Trump has come out in support of Roy Moore. Um, you know, people are not holding Trump himself accountable for his behavior. I would hope this would be a nonpartisan issue. It always has been a partisan issue, um, uh, we, you know, within the political context. Um, sexual harassment in politics goes way back. Um, it's bipartisan. Uh, it's one thing that men across partisan lines seem to be able to agree upon, their entitlement to sexually harass and assault women. I think that we need to um, change that. Carrie Baker is joining us from the studios of New England Public Radio in Amherst. She's associate professor, director of the study of women and gender at Smith College, also author of the book, The Women's Movement Against Sexual Harassment. Today, we're talking about the Me Too movement, uh, this very uh, public reckoning, so to speak, against uh, inappropriate behavior, whether at the workplace, at a university. Coming up, we'll be speaking uh, to uh, people in the uh, academic community about this very problem, even though today we see a lot of celebrities uh, losing their jobs. Um, If you want to join the conversation to talk about your experience or why you think this moment um, has really uh, risen to this occasion and why, the number 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. In studio with me is Rosie Enyart, Prevention educator and crisis counselor at the Center for Sexual Assault Crisis Counseling and Education in Stanford. Did I get it all, Rosie? You did. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Uh, again, uh, not a day goes by in the last uh, couple of months where um, Americans aren't seeing these headlines or talking about it at work or at home. Um, how, uh, from your expertise, when someone who's been traumatized, whether it's been years ago or just last week, when they're seeing this in the news, they're seeing people be finally being held accountable, how is that, how, is, how should people be reacting to that? Well, I think that um, many victims who have been silent for many years have felt isolated and alone. Um, and so the Me Too movement, I think, has 
created space for voices to come together. And I think that, you know, it may have created um, a sense of, of taking our power back for a lot of victims. Uh, if someone's listening now and this is calling up, again, these uh, instances in the news is calling up something that's happened to them, where do they turn for help? There are confidential, free crisis services available all over the state of Connecticut for survivors of sexual harassment and sexual assault. Um, These services are available in many languages. They're completely free, um, and they're no questions asked support for any survivor. I'd mentioned uh, the attention in recent years on sexual assault on college campuses, and often if someone is a victim or of rape or abuse, often there can be victim blaming. We're not seeing that as much lately. Uh, if someone has come forward with allegations, whether it happened again recently or a few years ago, um, Carrie mentioned when there is a track record of this, these kinds of claims, uh, these allegations, People aren't looking to, sh- to shun and shame the victim anymore. Is that something mm-hmm. that you're observing? You know, it's an interesting observation. I think that I am observing that in what I'm reading. Um, I think that uh, I think maybe the, the lessened victim blaming has to do with so many voices coming together and speaking up. I think that when one person stands up and shares their story, um, they're afraid of being of being asked questions like, well, why were you wearing that? Or, you know, why were you alone with that person in a room? Um, and I think now the, the collective voice is, is kind of creating more strength um, and protection from those questions. We're going to take some listener calls in just a couple of minutes, but I, I wanted to ask you, uh, Rosie, uh, when uh, someone harasses someone or abuses someone, it might have been a, a one-time thing. Uh, but for someone that's experienced it, they live with that for, for you know, every moment of their life. What mm-hmm. are the repercussions? What are the signs and symptoms of people that are dealing with this kind, this kinds of trauma? So there, everyone can be affected differently, um, but depression and anxiety symptoms are very common, especially if a person is already predisposed to those, uh, those troubles. Um, a sense of isolation, a deep sense of shame, um, difficulty returning to work or to school, to class, um, a feeling of being isolated from one's community. Um, and, you know, these are really difficult things to work with and to walk with. Um, and so so sexual harassment absolutely has a long-lasting impact on, on people. You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter, at Where We Live. Dominique is calling from Waterbury. Dominique, go ahead with your question or comment. Hi. Um, I'm a longtime listener of NPR, and I'm really excited to be on with you today. Um, I recently was empowered to share my story via Facebook after listening to NPR and hearing all these stories about our president endorsing, you know, and the Republican Party endorsing uh, this candidate who is under suspicion. Um, And I just wanted to say that I think this is a really good time for women to come together and empower one another so that we could make great change. Um, I'm a senior social work student uh, at WestCon, and I'm really passionate about policy and advocacy, and I, I'm i just really glad to hear so many people um, coming out and supporting one another so that we could make something great happen out of this. 
Well, Dominique, thank you for your call. Thank you for listening. I wanted to uh, go back to Carrie Baker, Associate Professor, Director of Study of Women and Gender at Smith College. Uh, Carrie, uh, do you feel like this moment in time, this movement, has staying power? I think it will have a tremendous impact. If you go back to the 1991 Anita Hill hearings, some of the things that happened after that is that women ran for public office in record numbers. They called it the Year of the Women. Um, number The number of women who ran for Congress doubled, and uh, the, the number of women in the Senate tripled, and you had um, that happening also at state houses across the country. Well, right now, you look at the number of women planning to run for office um, in the 2018 elections, and it's already an astronomical number of women. So I can feel pretty confident that there's going to be a lot more women in public office than there were one year than there was one year ago. There are also legal implications after what happened with Anita Hill. Congress passed the Civil Rights Act of 1991, which created punitive damages for sexual harassment claims. Um, right now, the um, women's movement is asking for things like the elimination of non-disclosure clauses that allow people like Harvey Weinstein to do this behavior over and over again. Um, the elimination of a cap on punitive damages for um, federal civil rights sexual harassment claims. Um, even the ERA, um, all, there are all these claims um, that women are now focused on to try to pass to enhance their legal status. And finally, after 1991, women filed lawsuits for sexual harassment in record numbers. The Equal Employment Opportunity Commission filings doubled within several years after Anita Hill. Women began filing lawsuits, and people were afraid that uh, the treatment of Anita Hill would discourage people. It didn't. It mobilized women. And so I can pretty much guarantee you that the number of lawsuits filed and claims made for sexual harassment is going to go up tremendously in response to what's happening right now because of the increased awareness, awareness that this is wrong, awareness that they have legal rights and that they can sue, and support for them to do this. Who are the voices that are being left out of this conversation? Again, we're looking at um, high-profile men in the entertainment and uh, media uh, world. Uh, if someone is working at a small company or working in the service industry, you know, what recourse do they have? So, you know, certainly celebrities were the ones that got this out there first. And I was discouraged at first because we were only hearing from a lot of celebrities and, you know, people were listening to them. And I'm like, well, you know, the sexual harassment movement back in the 70s was led by women of color. It was led by women on construction sites. And um, that's what the focus of my book is. And I know that women of color have always been leaders in this movement. And I was asking, where were they? And I was encouraged yesterday to see the Time Magazine um, Person of the Year, um, the Silence Breakers, um, that there were a lot. Uh, there was a broader representation of women in that group, and I was. It was interesting to me to hear that the person that um, started Me Too was an African American woman named Tarara Burke, and um, excuse me, Tarana Burke, as she created this um, hashtag or this um, movement in 2006. Mm -hmm. 
And it was about sharing with each other what had happened and acting collectively. And I'm, I, I think that, um, I think that women. This will have an impact on women across the fields, not just in media and politics. I talked to some construction workers yesterday who said that there are a lot more conversations going on in construction work sites um, than there were, you know, a year ago. Uh, again, you can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Derek is calling from Windsor. Derek, go ahead. Yeah, Lucy, thank you very much for this topic. And I just want to make a point that I want to applaud the women first for coming out. And it's a long time coming. And, you know, but for the for this issue to become a zero tolerance, I think they're going to have the, uh, need the support of real men. You know, when I say real men, men that's not doing this kind of thing, uh, when they see this kind of thing, they got to help, help the woman by speaking up against these kind of issues. And the next point I want to make is that what's the real re- repercussion? Because people like Bill O'Reilly, I understand that another network has picked him up and give him job, something of the sort. And if that's the case, how do we get to the bottom of this issue? Because if you can commit an offense and then some other network is going to give you a bigger, probably even a bigger job, then, I mean, it, it's not really going to send a message. Well, Derek, uh, very good point. We appreciate your call. Uh, Carrie Baker, I'll go back to you. Let's talk about the role men have to play at this moment in time. I think bystanders have a tremendous role to play. Within the context of sexual assault, for a long time, activists have talked about the importance of bystander inter- bystander intervention, which means if you see something, say something, intervene. Um, and, and I think men in particular have an important role as bystanders and as, um, you know, talking with other men and not allowing this, as Trump says, locker room behavior. Um, you know, the locker room needs to change. And I think that, as as the caller said, good men need to take a leadership role. Men have actually um, been very active on sexual assault. Groups like Men Stopping Rape, uh, people like Jackson Katz, um, other activists who have spoken out against sexual assault and worked to educate other men. That needs to expand. Um, I think men need to organize, get politically active and, and active in their communities to educate other men and to be role models for each other. Carrie Baker is a woman's studies professor at Smith College, author of The Women's Movement Against Sexual Harassment. She joined us today from New England Public Radio. Carrie, thanks so much for your time. We appreciate it. Thank you. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up, what's it like to start a career at a university when a faculty mentor becomes a harasser? Has this happened to you? You can join the conversation. 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up, what rights do you have in the workplace if you've been sexually harassed or discriminated against? Employment attorney Jared Lucan joins us later this hour. Now, news personalities, entertainment celebrities, and politicians are in the news over sexual misconduct. Harassment happens across any employment field against women and men. But changes to a workplace culture within different fields can be slow going. 
Take, for instance, in the academic world. Our next guest can talk about the experiences on college and university campuses and what should be done to change the culture. Joining me now by phone, Linda Wang, senior editor at Chemical and Engineering News. She and co-author Andrea Widener wrote a cover story about sexual harassment in chemistry chemistry departments um, for the magazine. Linda, welcome to the show. Hi, Lucy. Thank you so much for inviting me. So uh, first, walk us through what prompted you and uh, your co-author to write this story. And what have you been hearing uh, among women uh, who are in the chemistry fields around the country? Yeah, so this was prompted about a year ago when we started hearing, um, you know, other faculty members um, uh, uh, accused of sexual harassment in, um, for example, astronomy and um, you know, other fields, and we are wondering what uh, the prevalence is of sexual harassment in the chemistry field. And as we were starting to do our research, and we were reaching out to the community to to find out, you know, um, uh, how prevalent this is, we we got a um, a large response. We we asked the community, um, you know, people could step up and tell us their stories, um, and and we got almost a dozen women coming to us telling us about their experiences with sexual harassment in their chemistry department. Uh, most of these are graduate students, um, some postdocs, and we also had um, uh, some people who are early in their careers talking about what they faced when, when they were, um, you know, what they faced uh, in their departments. Um, and, and so we, we looked into it and, and we realized that this is a, a big problem. Um, we had uh, looked into some of the statistics, and um, in academia, a 2015 survey by the American Association of American Universities of, um, showed that of 27 research universities, 62% of female undergraduate and 44% of female graduate students experienced sexual harassment. And for graduate students, the perpetrator was most likely a faculty member or advisor, while for undergraduates, the perpetrator was most likely a fellow student. Mm-hmm. And um, another recent survey that we found from the National Postdoctoral Association showed that 70, 700 women and men were harassed out of more than 2,700 postdocs who responded to the survey. Linda, on your uh, in your article again, this is the ke- cover story of the September 18th uh, magazine, Chemical and Engineering News. Uh, if you go on your on your website, there are clips of these actual women who um, who wanted to remain anonymous, but they're, they're talking about what happened to them. We wanted to play one of those clips now. Eventually, he decided to take me to a conference. While we were driving, at some point, he started touching me inappropriately. His hand was on my leg. What do you do? Do you jump out of the car? You can't do that. We check in at the hotel, and he said, we should share a room because it's cheaper on the grant. Then, when we were at the conference, I was hanging out with the graduate students and other professors. He was jealous, like I was dating him. He explicitly told me, if you were not my student, I would have fallen in love with you. And he was married. So this was a former graduate student talking about a professor in her research group. Uh, Linda, you recited some stats earlier that are troubling about how many uh, female undergrad and graduate students uh, uh, experience harassment. But unlike uh, a, a traditional workplace, can we talk about some of the challenges of the academic setting where if something like this is happening, what recourse do they have? Yeah, I think a lot of women found that they, they don't have much recourse. Um, they're, um, especially for graduate students, they're under the, um, their mentor for, you know, about four years. And, um, you know, a lot of universities, they're, they're um, 
it's unclear what to do if you're experiencing sexual harassment. Um, and a lot of times, I, I think, you know, women end up blaming themselves. They think, you know, some of the women that we talked to, they, they wondered if, if they wore, you know, maybe it's because of the tennis shorts that they wore into the lab. Or, you know, I, I think they, they, it's, it's almost psychological that they believe that, you know, something that, that they did. Um, or, you know, they, they wonder um, if, um, you know, they, they, they're worried that nobody will believe them or they're embarrassed that um, something like this could happen to them. One woman that we talked to, uh, she said that the shame of being involved in a harassment situation is overwhelming. You don't want anyone to know because they wonder how a smart woman could ever get into a situation like this. Huh. Um, also, they're worried about retaliation. I think, you know, a lot of times they depend on their, their mentors for recommendations, and it's a very small community, so they're worried that, you know, if, if they say anything, that the rest of their career will be, um, you know, will, will be damaged. And you talk to women who, because of what they experienced, instead of trying to continue with their careers, they ended up dropping out. Yeah, that happens a lot, actually. I think, you know, sexual harassment, unfortunately, may be one of the reasons why there are few women in the sciences. Uh, many of the women told us that because of the, the environment that they, that they experienced, that they couldn't continue. Um, many of them did drop out of their Ph.D. programs or, or now, you know, they're in different fields altogether. Um, We're getting a tweet from a listener, Annie, who writes, there's a larger culture of entitlement and residue of an old boys club still in academia. In graduate school, uh, I was harassed by an older tenured professor, and I met another person he was inappropriate with over time. He's still teaching today. Mm, I, yeah. want, I wanted to bring into the conversation now Aisha Ramachandran, Assistant Professor of Comparative Literature and Director of Graduate Studies for Comparative Literature at Yale University. Aisha, welcome to the show. Hi, Lucy. Thanks for having me. What kinds of conversations are uh, faculty and students having at Yale University about sexual harassment and discrimination today? Well, as, uh, as you probably know, and very publicly, Yale has been torn apart by a lot of these allegations over the last several years. Um, and on the one hand, much of what uh, you've already discussed on the program happens here, inappropriate behaviors, uh, entitlement that leads tenured and non-tenured faculty members to assault or harass uh, younger students. On the other hand, I also think that there is a very strong awareness of the persistent culture that makes possible these kinds of behaviors and ways in which we can begin to change that. So Yale, for instance, has a quite strong women's faculty forum that does organize uh, discussions and support groups and means of communication that make possible and more legible ways for uh, people to report and then to deal with the fallout of having been uh, harassed or regressed upon. Um, uh, we've looked into organizing more grassroots conversations around lunches with graduate students and younger faculty and postdocs around these kinds of situations and issues to think more about what actually can be done. And as your earlier speaker was saying, uh, Yale has actually invested quite a lot in bystander intervention training. Um, this has worked extremely well at the undergraduate level, and it's now uh, voluntarily available to graduate students and faculty and staff. And a large number, I think close to 1,000 people, have been trained over the last couple of years to be better bystanders, uh, which can actually make substantial differences. Uh, a listener uh, tweeted at us, I'm waiting for the sexual harassment and assault purge to reach higher education. Aisha, again, uh, you're a, a staff member at uh, Yale University. This is a question that you and another colleague raised in, a, in an op-ed in the Washington Post. Uh, Mm -hmm. um, do you think that it will rise to the occasion? 
Well, I think that we are seeing much of the same calling out that we've seen publicly in other industries uh, within the academic world. I mean, the Chronicle for Higher Education has been full of articles about this. We've seen it more publicly in more mainstream venues. Many small niche publications have seen people come out and really uh, call out at at pretty gruesome lengths things that happened to them, including rape and assault. Uh, So I do think that, that the Me Too movement has certainly reached the academic world. I think the bigger question is, I mean, two things, really. One is, what, what, if anything, will actually happen? I think, once again, there is a call to uh, punish and bring appropriate penalties to really high-profile perpetrators, which is important. But the bigger question on the ground is, how are we going to change a, an inbred culture, a culture that is so entangled and intimate in the ways in which it behaves and blurs the lines between professional and personal and social interactions? And how are we going to change that culture in a way that, in a generation, will mean that we don't see this anymore? Aisha, you mentioned blurred lines. Let's talk about that a little further, this relationship between grad students and professors and why it's so difficult. So let me give you a very practical example. We often think of teaching as happening within classrooms, but both at the the undergraduate, especially the graduate level, a seminar might be meet for two hours in a classroom once a week, but there is a lot of interaction that happens in faculty offices, in hallways, in public lectures, and then the lunches or dinners that follow them, uh, in conversations that can go on over drinks, especially over coffee in cafes that can linger for hours and that are often difficult for students to disentangle themselves. So there is an entire intellectual culture that actually uh, takes place, I would say, in richer ways outside the classroom than in the classroom. And what this means is that often one's social life and one's intellectual life, which is also one's professional life, are thoroughly enmeshed. And it's not clear where you draw a line between a conversation that is about your dissertation chapter and an exciting conversation about, say, you know, uh, love poetry that you might be having with a tenured faculty member. This is where we live. Today we're talking about sexual harassment and discrimination in 2017. On the phone with me, Aisha Ramachandran, Assistant Professor of Comparative Literature and Director of Graduate Studies for Comparative Literature at Yale University. Also, Linda Wang, Senior Editor at Chemical and Engineering News. She and co-author Andrea Widener wrote a cover story about sexual harassment in chemistry departments uh, uh, around the country. Uh, Linda, I wanted to go back to you. Um, We know that uh, this department, especially chemistry, sciences, is extremely male-dominated. Can we talk a little bit further about what steps are being taken uh, to address this? I understand that the the National Sciences has a panel looking at harassment now? Mm -hmm. Yeah, a lot of societies are looking into this issue, and uh, there's been a number of, of workshops um, and uh, the, American, the American Chemical Society also is taking this issue very seriously, and, and we are uh, having a full-day symposium on sexual harassment. It's the first uh, of this kind for our society at our uh, March national meeting in New Orleans, and uh, we're also going to be having a bystander training workshop. So it, it's something that um, I think you know, more and more societies and more and more funding agencies are, are looking into. You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Meg is calling from Madison. Meg, go ahead with your question or comment. Well, my comment fits right into what you were talking about, which is that besides, uh, well, I'm, I'm heartened to hear that people are organizing around this issue, but in my experience, and the obvious example is, in fact, Clarence Thomas, women complain, bring a case, and the man is promoted to a position of higher power. This happens repeatedly. I saw that frequently in my own career. And it's very disheartening, and if people want to know why 
women don't come haven't come forward that's an obvious reason why not only will they be denigrated but their their abuser will be elevated or promoted that's a common thing and it has to you know if you really want to change the culture that has to stop people have to have consequences and not be promoted to a position of power after they have been known to be sexual harassers Thank you, Meg, for your comment. Uh, Aisha, I wanted to go back to you in terms of we were talking about uh, uh, the uh, the relationship between students and professors. Uh, when someone has tenure and someone doesn't, um, if that other person that's in the higher position is harassing, you know, what recourse can they take? Uh, this is a, a great and complicated question, and I think that your caller is exactly right, that it is very disheartening, especially within academic settings, to see um, people go unpunished and and remain secure uh, despite real abuses. Um, there are actual procedures. Different universities set them up differently uh, under Connecticut law, and, uh, and certainly within Yale, for instance, any faculty member is a mandatory reporter, which is to say that if I heard from a student or a colleague that there had been... Um, something around the uh, issue of sexual harassment that had taken place, I am required to report it to our Title IX coordinator. Uh, it, confidentiality can be maintained, and this doesn't mean that somebody has to actually bring a complaint. Uh, the problem is many people, there's a culture, I think, of disinformation around what reporting and, uh, actually entails, and a lot of people with very good reason fear retaliation and don't come forward. Um, I will also say that my, when my colleague and I uh, wanted to publish our op-ed, we were counseled by various people that this may not be very smart for us, be, since we are not tenured at the moment. Um, on the other hand, I think that there are a lot of people who do want to actually bring about change, but depend on people being able to speak up, bring to report through these various channels internally, uh, whether or not they actually bring complaints, because this documents a persistent culture that a university can potentially then take steps to reverse or to address in various ways. Um, so I do think that there is the double problem of uh, a culture of fear, um, but also then disinformation around what actually are procedures that do exist, as they do at various universities, to support people who may want to come forward. Um, you had mentioned, Aisha, a little bit earlier, um, some high-profile instances at Yale University. Um, I know at the School of Medicine, also there was a, a story, uh, I think a couple years ago, about a, a very um, famous philosophy professor at Yale. I understand that Yale University has a university-wide committee on sexual misconduct. Uh, we did reach out to Yale University to talk about this system in place. Uh, before we had to break, Aisha, um, the climate at Yale University, are people People confident in the systems that are in place now uh, to root out this the behavior? I think confidence is a big word. I think that this moment has made people feel galvanized about uh, speaking out more um, and learning more. I mean, to give you a concrete example, in our own department, we did a series of workshops and trainings this semester, and a lot of students who fe had felt disheartened and not at all confident in the shape of the university's procedures. Uh, have come to me and said they were surprised to learn that actually there were things in place that they did not think were in place. The, the challenge that does remain is sexual harassment, especially when it doesn't rise to the level of a criminal offense, of assault, uh, is really difficult to adjudicate. Um, and I think that because there are so many blurry lines and gray areas in the academic world, 
the kinds of cases that are not clear assault in criminal cases, and, and even those cases are difficult, um, make it very, very hard for people to both come forward and then have their concerns adequately addressed. So while your earlier speaker was talking about legal protections in place, and there are in- increasingly more legal protections, the problem is when you don't have a clear-cut case, which is often the case in the academic world, and it's difficult to prove because it's what one person said versus what another person said, uh, we get into a culture in which people are not sure who to trust and what they can say. So I think Yale is really combating uh, this, this kind of complex situation where they would like to give people more confidence. I think increasingly more women in positions of administrative control and power is a good sign. Um, but I think we have a long way to go. We'll have to leave it there. Aisha Ramachandran, Assistant Professor of Comparative Literature and Director of Graduate Studies for Comparative Literature at Yale University. Thank you, Aisha, for your time. Thanks so much, Lucy. Also, Linda Wang, senior editor at Chemical and Engineering News. She and co-author Andrea Widener wrote a cover story about sexual harassment in chemistry departments uh, nationwide. We'll tweet out a link to that extensive report. Linda, thank you for your time as well. Thank you so much, Lucy. Coming up, we're going to talk about, again, uh, what uh, protections you have in the workplace uh, with an employment attorney. Also in studio with us, Rosie Enyart, prevention educator and crisis counselor at the Center for Sexual Assault, Crisis Counseling and Education in Stanford. And we'll continue to take your calls, 860-275-7266. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up tomorrow, the National Football League. Each week, these athletes entertain millions. In recent years, the image of the NFL has darkened for a number of reasons, including reports about a brain disease known as CTE. On the next Where We Live, we're going to talk about that. And we want to hear from you. Have your views changed on football? That's join the conversation tomorrow on Where We Live. Now, big corporations and news organizations have been busy firing powerful men in recent weeks after allegations of sexual misconduct. But what if you work for a small employer? What if it's your manager or boss who's harassing you? Do you worry about losing your job if you report them? You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Joining me now in studio is Jared Lucan, labor employment attorney at Shipman and Goodwin LLP. Jared, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Um, you obviously... Uh, understand the laws related to sexual harassment and discrimination in the workplace. Uh, What are the protections uh, that um, individuals should know exist not only in Connecticut but federally, and how should employers be responding today? Well, the protection that exists for employees are set forth both in federal and our state law. So Title VII of the Civil Rights Act is the federal law that protects against harassment in the workplace. Uh, That applies to employers that employ more than 15 or more employees. Uh, On the side of that, we have our state uh, Connecticut Fair Fair Employment Practices Act, which applies to employers that employ three or more. Uh, Both statutes um, prohibit harassment within the workplace. Uh, They set forth a definition, or at least the Connecticut law sets forth a definition of harassment uh, in the workplace. And in Connecticut, at least, I think what's important and what we try to express to um, employers is that there's a aiding and abetting provision. Uh, meaning that if managers allow harassment to happen in the workplace, are complicit in it in some way, uh, know about it and fail to take the appropriate actions. Uh, We talked a little bit about bystander training um, in terms of, and I think it was Carrie that raised that, uh, if they know about it and don't do something about it, there can be individual liability. And we express that to our employers uh, because I think that makes, you know, the training and the prevention aspect of this a little more real 
uh, for people, knowing that it's not just my company that might be liable, but me as myself as a manager might be liable too for these actions. If we know that there are protections in place under the Civil Rights Act and over the years employers have sexual harassment training in place, why is it not effective? What are some of the reasons this continues to happen, Jared? And so that, that's a really good question. It's something that we as a firm have also been thinking about with our clients in terms of what can we do to provide sort of Again, we, we emphasize the prevention, and all employers should be emphasizing the prevention aspect of things and trying to get to a point where you're not dealing with what we're seeing now um, in, the, in the media, right? Um, and I should say, going back to your original question, all the standards that we talk about, the laws, they protect employers of all sizes, okay? So with respect to the training itself, you know, some training, you know, people have sort of just checked off a box that we've done it and then we move on. Um, we find that training that isn't boring is helpful. So having actual real-life examples, um, using technology to get people interactive, uh, making sure that the, empl- the managers and their supervisors know what is your policy as an employer? How do you implement it? What things should you be looking for? Giving examples of those type of things in an indus- industry-specific way uh, so that if you're doing training for, let's say, Um, a school board of some kind, you're not giving examples of what happens at a law firm, right? You want to give examples of what you might face uh, every day uh, in your job. Uh, And that makes it, I think, more real. And so in terms of why trainings aren't working, uh, I think, one, some trainings are boring, right? I I think we've all sat there in front of a TV screen and just clicked a button and said, I'm done. Um, Other thing is that they, uh, they don't emphasize the fact that um, there's a practical definition of, of harassment as well, and that is that it's essentially power expressed sexually, right? It's not necessarily ever about sex. It's also about power. Uh, it's about demeaning someone uh, in their self-worth because of their gender. Uh, and so the focus on that power aspect and how do we change the culture from an employer's standpoint that these things aren't happening, right? Uh, and so we focus on that. We focus on the complaint procedures because as an employer, you can only take action when you know about something. Uh, and we heard a lot about the fears of retaliation. We hear uh, from the other uh, guests about people not wanting to come forward. And that's true, right? The statistics show that people don't come forward for fears of retaliation. And so when you're emphasizing the training and you want to emphasize to your employees, these things exist to protect you. Uh, but it also starts from the employer taking action in terms of its culture, mm-hmm. right, and stopping it from the top down. Uh, to prevent these things from getting out of control. Now that we're seeing this onslaught of headlines that um, very high-profile people are losing their job over allegations, there in the conversation, uh, there is the question, naturally, well, if it's an allegation, why are people losing their job? And I think that's it's, it's interesting, right, because we sort of emphasize, and I would say, you know, you don't want to rush to any conclusion. You don't want to jump to a conclusion. And you're absolutely right. I mean, these things are allegations. We heard, you know, Clarence Thomas, Anita Hill, those are allegations. There's two people that know what happened, Clarence Thomas and Anita Hill. Um, The stress, though, is, A, once we know about something or should have known about something, don't jump to that conclusion. It might ultimately end up being that somebody has done the harassment, that the allegations are true, uh, and you take whatever necessary action. But as an employer, you want to say, okay, I have a complaint now or I know about something. What should I do? Let me look into it. Let me figure out what happened. Let me talk to the right people and let me put the pieces together to determine, is this accurate? Is it not? Is it a misunderstanding? Is it not? I'm not saying that harassment doesn't happen because we all know that it does. Uh, but just to say we have these allegations, they're so bad we have to fire someone. 
Um, I think it just depends on the situation, right? If you're a mom and pop shop in Connecticut, maybe you're not going to be on CNN every day uh, if you don't necessarily terminate someone right away. You know, we look at the reaction to the allegations against Matt Lauer was immediate termination. Um, And so I think you have to look at the situation as well. But I would also just caution not to just rush in and make a decision without looking at the situation. Um, In recent weeks, Jared, we're hearing a lot about the role of confidentiality agreements, mandatory arbitration agreements. Is this something that uh, employers are are not going to take seriously, or are they going to still stick with these agreements uh, given the controversy? Well, I think until there's a shift in the law, um, that employers are likely going to keep them in their agreements. Uh, And the reason for it is exactly what we're talking about. Generally, these are allegations. And simply because a company decides for better or worse, to settle a matter uh, rather than fight it out in court or fight it out in the court of public opinion, because we are talking about reputation of companies out there as well. Uh, we do include, uh, employers do include uh, confidentiality provisions within any settlement agreement that they might have. And the reason being is that we, this should be confidential. We don't know. It hasn't factually been heard by a jury to say we did something wrong. Uh, and we're trying to avoid getting to that place. Yeah. A part of this movement are people are brave enough to come forward and be public. And if people are protected in confidentiality agreements, there's always not uh, accountability. That is true, right? So um, the question is, how do you know about these things going on when people aren't allowed to speak about them? Uh, and the answer to really from our perspective and from my perspective is it just needs to stop from an inside out, right? So if a company knows these things are happening, it should know that these are illegal. It should know that this shouldn't be happening, right? You don't want to get to the point where your your company logo is on whatever news channel it is that night and in the news cycle. Uh, and so taking those actions to prevent it uh, to begin with is the, the right way to go. Uh, that's Jared Lucan, labor employment attorney at Shipman and Goodwin LLP. Rosie Enyart was in studio with me as well, prevention educator and crisis counselor at the Center for Sexual Assault Crisis Counseling and Education in Stanford. Rosie, I just wanted to throw a quick question to you from a listener. She wants to know what can what advice can you give to combat narratives that uh, people falsely accuse? How do we engage in conversation with people who minimi- minimize this movement that's happening today? Well, I think it's important to know that um, that false allegations of sexual harassment are, are really a myth. You know, they exist at a very small margin. Um, and we really need to uh, put the shame on the perpetrators of these types of, of, of misconducts. Well, I want to thank you, Rosie, again, for coming in up from Stanford. Also, Jared Lucan, a lot to cover in just a short amount of time, but you did a great job. Thank you, Jared. Uh, Today's show produced by Carmen Baskoff. Special thanks to WNPR intern Sarah Bly. Um, Too bad we ran out of time. This is an engaging conversation. We hope to continue it in the future. Also, thanks to technical producer Kion Wolf. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. As always, thanks for listening.